Bruce Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the Hey guys, we're back. Hi. Uh, very enthusiastic, Stuart. Thank you. I, I tried to interrupt you. <laughs> you're you're pretty good at that. So of course you're hearing the great Dr. Stuart Brigham, That's and right. of course our our other co-host, Dr. Paul Williams. Hi, Paul. Hey, Matt. How you doing? I'm doing well. Tonight we talked about advocacy and kind of like a potpourri of po- position papers, policy statements <laughs> from the ACP, a lot of you kind like of random pearls about there. the Affordable Care Act. We talked about social determinants. We talked about uh, gender equity a little bit. Um, and before we introduce our esteemed guest, Paul, would you tell them what we what we generally do on this show? Well, happy to, as always. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use our expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Sometimes we do a deep dive up front and really get to know our guests, and then sometimes we don't, um, which is the case of this episode. (laughs) Our wonderful returning guest has been on, I I don't know how many episodes now, five or six maybe, is Dr. Fatima Syed. Uh, Fatima, thank you for joining us, and can you sort of remind the audience who you are and tell them a little bit about what we're going to do on the show tonight? Hey, everyone. My name's Fatima Syed, and I'm an internist in Durham, North Carolina, did my training in Philadelphia and have been uh, involved with the American College of Physicians for many years now. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Robert McLean, who is a rheumatologist and internist in New Haven and the current president of the American College of Physicians. He's been heavily involved with Medicine Practice and Quality Committee and the ACP, as, as well as the Health Policy Committee and is kind of their representative this year. So we're going to be getting delving into advocacy and what that means today. And also joining us, I, I should mention, is Dr. Deep Shah, another returning guest, kind of Fatima's partner in crime. He has a master's in comparative social policy, as do you, Fatima, right? And Forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> so... That's why they know so much about this. That's such oh, a. I just assumed we all did. Yeah. <laughs> so it just kind of goes without saying. And and Fat and like Fatima, Deep has been on the ACP Health and Public Policy Committee and involved in some of the behind the scenes of writing these policy papers. So they are. It's a wonderful crew we have to kind of talk us through some of this stuff. Stuart, did you have any puns you wanted to throw in uh, at this point? Sorry, I'm deep in thought. <laughs> Okay. So no, then. No would be no. So, uh, Robert, let's let's start officially. Thank you for coming back on the show. And can you please remind the audience a little bit about yourself? Give them a one-liner. Okay, super. Well, I'm a uh, 56-year-old physician, uh, practiced primary care and rheumatology for over 20 years, but now focusing more on rheumatology with a very strong interest in quality and safety where I spend other time. And I'm passionate about advocacy uh, and the role that uh, physicians can play in improving our dysfunctional healthcare system. And as a result of that, I got active in the ACP and I'm lucky enough to be the president of the ACP for this year. 
Well, congratulations, uh, Mr. President. We're very thrilled to talk to you as an internal medicine podcast. You are our our, our highest leader, so thank you. <laughs> I'm honored. <laughs> well, we we should get to it, Fatima. Can you get us started off here with uh, maybe a case scenario? Absolutely. So um, let's talk about a 31 year old primary care physician has been in practice for two years. She's becoming increasingly frustrated with the EMR at work and finds the billing and coding piece particularly difficult. And I'm going to throw another case. The question is, what do I tell her? What do you, what, what do you tell her? And what do you think um, is what, what's out there for her to do to, to, to work on some of these issues or who's working for her? Yeah, well, that's okay. That's a great place to start. So the first place, the first thing I'd say is that who's working for her is is organized medicine is clearly recognizing this, specifically the ACP. The AMA is doing a lot in this space too. My bias is that the ACP stuff is really focused uh, more on internal medicine since that's what we stand for and that's who we represent. There are really, I think, a tremendous number of resources on the ACP's website. I'm not necessarily under advocacy, although that's our kind of title here. But under uh, uh, practice support, um, templates about billing, learning about billing, there's a, there's a lot there is a lot of stuff to learn, and it really is challenging someone re- relatively recently in a practice over over how to do it and what to do it. And quite frankly, the complexity is probably what's driven a lot of physicians in their younger years into large systems and networks where a lot of people take care of some of those headaches for them. And Dave, I want to kind of bring you into this as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about, because um, since, since you're in a leadership role in a healthcare organization as well, of, of if, if you see this and um, what's out there right now, I, I've heard of initiatives of potentially coding changing and um, physicians being billed at the same level for, for outpatient visits. Um, what's going on in the policy realm with this right now? Well, I think when you talk about the new physician who's entering practice, most of us, at least I know I did, I was expecting the first couple of years to really be about getting my clinical bearings and making that transition from trainee to the clinical supervisor or the attending. But because most training programs, at least I can speak to mine, do not really talk much about what it's like from an administrative perspective it sort of hits you like a ton of bricks when you first come out. And I'd be interested to know from, from Robert, sort of a lot of people who go into these practices, whether they join a large group or they join a, a private practice, community health center, or they join a hospital-based large system, you really just feel like you're drowning the first six months in the scenario that Fatima described. And how do we teach and coach people not only to advocate for themselves at a policy level, but also within their own institutions. And so as a young leader in our group, that's something that I care a lot about, about helping people make that transition. But I think we don't even have the tools and training of how to speak on our own behalf when we're entering these new environments and practicing. I'm sure everyone in the group can speak to their own. Yeah, no, you're, 
your point is very well taken. I think that, um, I mean, there's several angles to approach. Um, from the standpoint of just surviving in practice and figuring out how do you bill and code visits, um, there's a tremendously steep learning curve. And I think that without, um, to some extent, finding a mentor, somebody that you can turn to with questions about different types of visits and when is it appropriate to bill a level three or a level four visitor, how do you use modifiers, all these real life things really become second nature over time, but it but it's not something that you learn in residency. And quite frankly, you shouldn't necessarily be spending time in residency learning that stuff necessarily, but it's critically important. Um, and as I say, there I think there are a lot of resources out there. The ACP website has a lot. There's probably others elsewhere too, but, but you learn it by doing it. And I think um, the questions that come up over what does documentation mean, what does coding mean, is something that you really need people to show you who've been doing it for a while. Now, on the advocacy angle, um, people should be aware that it is recognized that coding and billing is, tr is a tremendous administrative burden. And I was involved with the Medical Practice and Quality Committee for the ACP a few years ago when I was on the Board of Regents um, when we put together a paper about uh, reducing administrative burden where we, uh, as the ACP, decided that we needed some policy to help legislators, regulators, and also physicians understand the role of a lot of these headaches that people have. Because quite frankly, a lot of things that are currently administrative burdens are, are there for a reason. You know, there are prior authorizations because in some cases people do things without going through the right steps or insurance companies want to be able to say, no, you should use a certain formulary or not. I'm not defending those things, but sometimes the, the people who are paying the bills to some extent have a, a right theoretically to, to direct certain decision-making. We don't like that, but that's kind of the world we live in. And, um, some of those burdens are there for a reason, but some of those th reasons have gone away and the paper calls for payers and regulators to evaluate different things. And we classify these different burdens and administrative tasks, and we call them out very explicitly and say, these things need to be justified in this day and age. We can't just keep piling on more and more of these. Um, and we, so we have a little bit of a, of a, uh, scheme of a kind of a diagnostic criteria for what types of burdens and tasks there are, where there are things that have a role, some things don't. A lot, all those things are not things that the doc should have to do. So a lot of this gets at who within a given practice site should be handling some of these. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't defend them in the least. It actually tries to give a roadmap for how to correct and improve them. Um, now, in terms of how to someone who's frustrated and wants to explain their energy or explain how to get things better in their group, I think that's just a matter of, of figuring out where and how to speak up, whether within their administrative site, figure out who's making the decisions and in you know subtle ways express an interest so that you can kind of get pulled in. Most physicians, young or older, are very busy. And I think a little bit of interest and somebody who's done a little bit of homework and knows something about this before you know it, you're going to be asked to help. Um, and that's one way to get involved and to kind of then help become one of the decision makers that can help lead things for a small group or, you know, in my case, in advocacy, start that in my chapter. Next thing you know, you're, you know, becoming a little more of a decision maker at the state medical society. And next thing you know, it's national. So all that stuff kind of builds over time. So, uh, just wanted to throw something at you. So, um, 
the uh, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services were recommending that they uh, contract the level three through level five billing in order to reduce the uh, amount of paperwork. And I I know ACP kind of came out against that. Um, What do you think would be an appropriate way moving forward to help to consolidate even something as simple as that? Well, it's a great example where um, ACP pushed strongly and has been for a number of years to to decrease documentation burden. Um, and Medicare in the last CMS in the last couple of years has actually been probably more responsive than has been quite a while to truly trying to relook at things and make some changes. The problem in this case was they kind of mixed up billing with documentation. So the ACP's goal was not to compress code so that now you're going to get paid the same whether someone's you know a little sick or a lot sick. It was to say, how much do you need to document for a level three versus a level four versus a level five visit? The idea was not to compress the codes and simplify the billing. It was to simplify the documentation. So when Medicare came out and said, oh, yes, we're going to decrease some of the uh, some of the requirements for documentation, like now if you have a medical student, their history can count for some of the documentation. I mean, there's some things that they did that were better, but we were completely against the idea of compressing codes because we're cognitive docs and we see sick, complicated people. And we have to be able to differentiate a level three from a level four from a level five in terms of the complexity of what we're doing and how to bill for it. So, So we basically pushed back a lot on the on the code compression, as did the AMA and a bunch of other a lot of other medical societies. Um, I'm not certain exactly if it's set in stone yet. Quite frankly, it was kind of a lot of back and forth, and and CMS kind of has these proposed rules, and then final rules, and things change a lot over time. But I can tell you that the 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 physician organizations push back strongly against compressing codes. That was not what we wanted. And who's exactly at the table with these decisions? Like, what does that, you know, for, for someone who's a resident or a medical student, like who's, who's making these decisions? How do they come about and how do advocacy organizations represent practicing physicians? Well, without getting too much into the weeds about some of the coding stuff, a lot of the coding determinations are made by something called the ROC, the relative, uh, I can't remember what it stands for deep. Do you remember what the letters are? Whatever it's called, it's called the RUC. It's through the AMA, but also related to the CMS. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, stuff happens with different specialty societies that are represented in that group, which meets. And the ACP has a seat or two at that table. Other organizations do. They make recommendations to CMS. CMS makes those recommendations. Um, and when they put out things like proposed rule letters, which they do in like February, the ACP sends back a 24-page response letter explaining what things are good, what things are bad, as do other organizations. And then I think the final proposed rule, or the final rule rather, is I think expected out probably any day now. But um, a lot of it is is relationship building. These organizations uh, reach out, contact some of the, the higher-ups at CMS, uh, intermittently meet with them. I had the very good fortune just two weeks ago to meet with Seema Verma, the head of CMS, with a couple ACP folks and a couple other uh, leading uh, 
ACP Physicians, um, where she kind of wanted to get our feedback on just some of the direction things were going. There wasn't really a specific agenda, but we were able to, I think, give some pretty productive feedback on some of their newer models that they were proposing for primary care. We gave feedback about the codes that the documentation improvements that they're pushing are nice. The code compression is really kind of misguided. Uh, if they want things like telehealth and patient access to improve, they need to really rethink how that gets paid for. Issues around Medicare patients having co-pays for everything virtually is a real uh, disincentive. So there are a lot of things that I think they're willing to listen to. We'll, we'll kind of see where it goes. But I would like to say that we're one of the organizations that has really pretty regular, very high-level communications between our, between our high-level DC staff and some of the CMS folks. Can I? That that was a very thorough and helpful answer. I, I'm happy to be here with so many policy experts, but let's for the purposes of this episode, let let's call me whatever the opposite of a wonk is, <laughs> and just say that I don't know anything. Um, you you mentioned a policy paper before, and I think one question I had, and I, forgive me if this is too fundamental, but sort of I wanted to know when those are written, who exactly are they for, and sort of what are they trying to accomplish? Are they to unify the the body who they come from? Are they to educate? Are they directed at policy making bodies? What is Kind of what is the point? How do they are they generated, and what are they trying to actually get done? It's a very good question, and and they really are multi uh, they're multi purpose. So uh, the ACP prides itself on being an evidence driven, policy driven organization, and for the most part, I mean for the completely, when uh, the ACP wants to respond to something in the public space, whether it's a law, whether it's a policy, um, the ACP really will not take a stand on something unless we have policy that has been vetted and established. So all those different policy papers go through a very explicit process where uh, sometimes it comes from governors, from uh, from the Board of Governors, because that's chapter governors, I should say, or members. Ideas get generated and then make their way kind of percolate up through different bodies within the, the American College. And then they go to a committee, which has a which is a wide representation of people from the Board of Regents, people from the Board of Governors, at-large members who are experts in a given area. And they and they basically ha go through evidence as what's addressing the question, and then they come up with a policy. And the policy is meant to educate, it, it's meant to take a stand in some cases publicly in the public health space or wherever, the policy space. It's meant to inform our clinicians of what we stand for and why. It's meant to inform regulators of what we stand for and why. And it's meant to give us background for when an appropriate law comes up, we can support or oppose a given law because it does not coincide with our policy. And I, 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 I that, that's a really great explanation and sort of to kind of give some more background about how a bill becomes a law in the ACP world. Um, <laughs> basically, we're a really large organization and um, ACP has to represent certain topics or at least it needs to have um, goals that it's that it's following through on. And it's not going to do it without evidence. And so these papers that come about, I'll give you an example with some of the gender pay gap stuff. It came from conversations um, amongst members, amongst the Council of Resident and Fellow Members. And then it basically went higher and higher up until there was um, a specific paper initiative that talked about where, where, where we stood, similar with women's health. Um, and I think that's a good segue to kind of talk to, 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 to Dr. McLean about what are, your, what are the main policy initiatives that you're focusing on this year? 
Can I can I break in before we we get to that? And and this will I promise set it up. I just wanted to point out, Fatima, I saw your name on one of the three papers that I think we're going to be talking about just in the near future. And to point out that you started on the Council for Resident and Fellow Members. And I think that's like a very tangible way. Like if you're listening, I know there's a medical student uh, council, right? And then there's a resident and fellow members council. So if you're interested in policy or think you might be and you want to get kind of a taste for this, like it seems like, at least from my perspective, Fatima, that you and I think Deep as well, as residents were able to be in the room and helping make and shape some of these policies. Is that? Totally, totally. Deep, I'll let you talk about that. Yeah, I wanted to get back to... Dr. McLean's earlier point when he was describing sort of how decisions are are made in this big medical complex across the country and, you know, describing how this committee that's administered by the AMA called the RVS Update Committee, I mean, it's amazing. It's an acronym within an acronym (laughs) that decides how all of us are paid for the work that we do. And even as someone who is pretty enthusiastic and knowledgeable somewhat about the process, there comes a point at which I feel like it's very opaque. And one of the really neat things about getting involved as a medical student or a resident or even early career uh, faculty is you've got to start to learn how this process works at some point if you want to have a voice. And these are the ways that are available to us, at least through ACP and almost every professional society that that has a seat at the table now has equivalents uh, for medical students and, and trainees. Um, they are somewhat competitive, but you can always find a way to get involved, particularly at your chapter level, um, which is the state level for almost every single organization. And I will say this, if you try to get involved in ACP as a medical student or a resident and um, you you don't get selected for the council. We will remember the good candidates. We'll remember the people who reached out to us and um, you can potentially join different committees as well. Um, But one thing I want to point out also is that how you get like, you don't want to get involved in an organization that is only, only matters to itself, right? You want to be a part of an organization that's talking about issues that are relevant to the practicing clinician, um, and are relevant to your patients as well, first and foremost. And so in order to do that, I think it's really important to get involved with topics that are, you know, become your own content expert, if that makes sense. If you're um, a, a, a medical student who's passionate about um, residency seats, you know, ACP is working on organiza- on, on that issue. Um, and like, look into the policy work that ACP is doing, look into the advocacy work at a chapter level, and you don't have to work with just ACP, work with other medical organizations, um, get involved in your local legislatures as well. There's plenty of ways to get involved. Um, but I think you have to find sort of your passions and interests within yourself as well. Yeah, if I could weigh in for just a sec there, I, I agree completely. I was going to say while the the, I mean, the Council for Early Career, the Council for Students, the Council for Residents, there are wonderful segues, and those voices are incredibly important to the ACP and have been for a number of years to the extent that the chair of those councils actually sits on the Board of Regents, which is where kind of the real, the major decisions get made. So those councils are key, and each of the local chapters has 
most of those councils. And that's 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 e an easy place to get involved locally. And I think in the, the the chances of getting onto the national council are much greater if someone has kind of sharpened their teeth or shown interest at the local level. I agree completely with Fatima, what Fatima said about kind of doing your homework and, and learning about some of these policies or issues. You know, to answer, I think the question that Matt was saying, what are somebody said, what are the issues that that are kind of hot? Well, there are things that matter. You know, these, these are purpose-driven ideas. And you see them in the news all the time. I mean, we have to, as doctors, be, be having kind of policies and trying to help progress things, big problems that address our patients, things like the opioid crisis, things like how do we try to get a handle on different social determinants of health, and where does that, how do we measure that, and where do we have an impact on that? Things like access to care for not just you know, poor people, but people who are otherwise being discriminated against. The women's equity issue, the LGBT, you know, those different groups are sometimes uncomfortable for people because it feels like we're getting too political. But but as physicians, we are seeing patients and those people are patients. And so we feel very strongly that we need to stand up and advocate in the public arena around some of these issues, which we feel have public health impacts. So those are issues which, you know, we're commenting on weekly. I mean, if people look at the ACP website, there's like a little news thing on the right side. I'm, I'm signing off on some public statement or letter on one of these issues at least once or twice a week. It's really, it comes up a lot. We sign on to some amicus briefs when some of these issues are being kind of addressed at state or Supreme Court levels. I mean, people listen to docs. And one of the things that's fascinating about advocacy, and you learn over time, when you go whether to the state house or to, the, to Congress, docs have credibility. And, and we need to use that well. We can't, we can't take advantage of it too much. We got to be honest and truthful and evidence-based, but people are yearning for good factual knowledge and they tr tend to trust us. And so I think that we, if we use that well, they tend to find us as credible sources. And so we tend to have a pr good bit of credibility in the political arena. Fatima, why don't you take us, I want to maybe use the rest of our time, why don't we go through a couple of the specific policy papers and maybe Paul Stewart and I can ask, ask some questions and you all can kind of speak, speak to the specifics, um, but maybe that's a, a good way to use some of the rest of our time here. Sure. Um, do you have a preference on which? Yeah, I, I wanted to know, the Affordable Care Act, is that still a thing? Uh, I, heard it was <laughs> I heard it was repealed. Is there any truth to that? Um, yeah, so let's talk about that. So um, the Affordable Care Act is very much a thing. And there is a lot of rhetoric that goes on about what's staying and what's not staying and how it impacts people. And there's a lot of healthcare innovation points going on. But the reality is, is that one thing I say, I think every podcast is healthcare is an evolution and the Affordable Care Act is a part of that evolution that we have to accept that it is a part. Um, and now we need to talk about how do we improve further or, um, you know, further, further uh, the, the, not necessarily the Affordable Care Act, but just further the evolution. So it's still very much a thing. Um, that's a paper that I was involved in as well that you mentioned, Matt. Um, and uh, just to not take credit for things that I didn't write, these papers are written by policy experts who, um, uh, who, are, who work for the American College of Physicians and are then edited, written, and reviewed by uh, the various you know, bureaucratic bodies and right. different committees and that sort of thing. So I don't want to take credit where credit's not due. 
Um, but let's talk about some of the recommendations in this. And then I'd love to get deep involved uh, and, 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 and Robert as well. Um, yep. But the first point um, that we, that was the first recommendation is um, we need to strengthen the patient protection and affordable care act. Um, and that's sort of like a general um, assessment that will achieve truly universal health coverage. I think, Bob, we can say this. AC, what what is ACP's position on on universal coverage? So going back to probably the early 1990s, when the ACP first started to really get involved in some national health policy um, issues, and the ACP has always stood for uh, reforms that provide universal access to affordable health care for, you know, all Americans. And so that's kind of the ultimate goal. Um, clearly, they, uh, ACP endorsed the uh, ACA back in uh, 2009 or 10, whatever, because um, it, it did a pretty good job of getting us there. It was not a perfect bill. Um, clearly, it didn't ha- address affordability issues enough. Because quite frankly, if it had done that, it wouldn't have been able to to pass. I think, but so so we we got a bill that was imperfect, but it it provided accessible health insurance on the state exchanges and wherever to a lot of Americans who did not otherwise have it. It addressed the big uh, uh, pre-existing uh, condition issue, um, and so as it's slowly kind of getting peeled apart, unfortunately, um, we felt that it was important to to make a statement about ways that we thought things needed to be done to shore it up. So stabilize, things around stabilizing the health insurance market, trying to encourage states to expand Medicaid, since some of them are contracting it, um, increasing competition in the marketplace. A lot of the competition that was set up seemed like it seemed like a good idea, but many states you know, only have one plan in their exchange. That's not exactly competition. Um, and also trying to help uh, with... Uh, with funding needed to help educate patients that they still have the ACA available and how to actually enroll in the plans. So I think that kind of hits most of the highlights of what we put forth in that bill. Yeah, I think the main points are that coverage needs to exist for people and it needs to be affordable. And then there are certain sort of recommendations of how to get that, but those are the two the two main points that ACP is focusing on in this paper. As a follow-up question, maybe you all can comment on this. One of the things that I saw in that paper was commenting on these sort of non-ACA non-compliant plans, which are now available. So why are those a problem? Like there, So that we had these healthcare marketplaces, right, where people could get these ACA compliant plans, but now there's supposedly non-compliant plans that are out there. Why is that an issue? Deep, do you want to take that one? Yeah, I think... Um... There are some plans out there called association health plans, um, and I think that might be what what you're referring to, um, which are carve-outs by the Trump administration to allow folks to buy insurance that may not have as broad coverage or cover all the services that we think or that the Affordable Care Act um, spells out that every health insurance plan should provide. Mm-hmm. And those are a carve out or an exception that have been uh, granted uh, through orders from the Trump administration. So most people think they haven't been particularly successful, uh, but others think that they may grow in popularity and that if they do, then that would sort of undermine the principles behind the Affordable Care Act in the first place because they wouldn't provide that level of coverage that we want everybody to have. 
it's one thing to have coverage. It's another thing to have good coverage. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Like this, Robert, if I can just wait in for a second, I think that that's the big concern. That, and I'm not certain if the, of the non-compliant plans, it's not just that they're not providing what was called like the essential benefit package. I think there's concern that there's just much less regulation around them and, and that people are more easily, quite frankly, snookered into buying insurance yeah. that looks cheaper, but in the end is going to, you know, give them huge high deductibles or, or co-pays or whatever and, and lead to them being bankrupt just like they are now if they don't have insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's trying to have more truthfulness in the marketplace um, that is, you know, continues to be lacking in many cases. What, what are the arguments against the Affordable Care Act? Like, wh- wh- why are people trying to repeal it in the first place? I mean, I, I know that's a, probably a, a very broad question, but, you know, the, the only thing that I've heard, the only thing I've seen are the fact that the, that the plans that are ACA compliant are, for some individuals, pretty expensive. Well, I think there are issues where, so um, one aspect of it, which I think kind of got reversed, was uh, the Cadillac plan tax. So a lot of people have very generous health insurance through their employer, sometimes some very large companies. And um, I can't remember how exactly they they defined it, but the feeling was that um, the because it's because of the tax deductibility of, of insurance through employers, it ended up being a significant almost like tax break to the wealthier. And it was less of a level playing field thing. So one of the aspects of the ACA was actually to tax the companies that were providing such generous health insurance. So people who have really good health insurance are now being told by their employer, oh, because of this bad federal law, we can't give you such generous health insurance even though we want to. So there was, there was some pushback at that level. I'm giving you a very superficial view of it. That was one pushback. I think there's also just the, the societal, this reeks and smells like socialism. Mm-hmm. You know, people use words. And, you know, as I've said in multiple tweets and columns, words matter. People have emotional reactions to words. They think that this is a big government takeover, yet they can't wait to turn 65 and go on Medicare. <laughs> you know, I mean, come on. So that, that, that happens time and time again. I had a patient two days ago who, who's gone without health insurance, and now he has like a big tax bill because he's worried um, – because he didn't pay for insurance, so he's paying the penalty. Yet I say, "Oh, that's really too bad." And he says, "But I, but I go on Medicare in two years. I can't wait." <laughs> but he's been. He, 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 I told you five years ago this, this is a horrible socialistic plan, and I, I wasn't even going to go there. But so there's this tremendous disconnect, um, and actually something that I would recommend. So so now people are talking about Medicare for all. You know, and what does that mean? There are all these different bills. There's actually a wonderful. One of the other podcasts I listened to beside you guys was one that I saw a few days ago on Kaiser Health News, and they have a podcast called What the Health, <laughs> and um, there was an explanation from some great health reporters of, of the different Medicare plans, and they kind of analyzed what's the funding of Medicare. People don't, people don't realize how much private funding or how, many, how, much, how much private insurers play a role in administering Medicare or in Medicare Advantage. But then on the other side, you know, people don't realize that Medicare actually still has a lot of government funding. So people just don't understand where all the money is going to and coming from. And until they understand that, you can't really talk about it honestly. So universal health care is not the same as Medicare for all. 
right? Yeah. You know, you when when you sort of defined it earlier, you're saying universal health care is just it just means that everyone will have access to health care, not necessarily how they're getting it. Yeah, universal health care is a concept and how you achieve it is different. So I would say universal health care means everyone has access to health care. How that is achieved, whether it's through a tiered system, a national system where everyone has the same kind of insurance like is being proposed with the Medicare for all, whether it's, um, uh, you know, different models, universal coverage is sort of a catch-all term. Um, and going back to the point about who, why, why do people want to refu- repeal Affordable Care Act? It's not even necessarily about repeals. I think people want to evolve the healthcare systems. Obviously, things are political, and there's a certain dem- like party that that passed this law. But the origins of it, deep, can go into this as well. Um, are uh, from the seventies and under different administration Republican administrations as well, like Nixon, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah huh? If I if I go back that far, I'll never be invited on this podcast again. <laughs> but I think there are legitimate criticisms from from both sides about the law, and the question is, what is the physician voice in all of this, mm-hmm. and how do we have a constructive voice in the current political environment? Um, and what's actually good for our patients and what's good for our profession. Uh, on the far left, there are people who really feel like the law just didn't go far enough. And a lot of it uh, just supported the indis- existing healthcare industry and perhaps didn't go far enough to help patients who are in need of greater assistance or give them more choice. And those who are on the right side of the spectrum are very concerned both about the socialism, but also that eventually this will either restrict choice or restrict access to care. And now what I would be interested to hear from, from Dr. McLean is at this point where we probably all agree that the law is here to stay. um, What role do you see the large medical professional societies playing in making sure that the original intent of these laws is actually preserved, which is about access and coverage, because that was what the law was sold on, which is increasing coverage. And now with the cost of insurance going up again, um, with plans that people do buy through the Affordable Care Act on their state exchanges, getting into a little bit of um, detail here, how do we help rein those things in? Uh, I uh, agree that 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 really is a challenge right now. We have a a law that kind of had some great goals that didn't um, really have, it didn't have a public option, you know, so that that kind of might have leveled the marketplace to some extent. So basically from the get go, there were problems where if it was designed as it initially was designed, it may have had a, a fighting chance. It was almost destined to have problems from the get go because of all that. So it has had some problems, especially as the opposition party has kind of tried to peel it apart in the last five years. So given where we are now, where you have kind of a system that's kind of floundering, um, but it still has provided, you know, insurance to, I don't know, 20 some million people, I think was the last count who did not have insurance before. You know, one of the things that drives people is, is loss aversion. 
once people have had insurance and they hadn't had it before, taking that away by taking the system away is really going to be hard. And I think politicians do realize that. So it's not going to go away immediately. It doesn't seem like it. Um, and so either A, do we try to short up and fix it, which is kind of what this paper tried to say to do in the short run, or do we, in this political cycle, say, you know what, you know, if we're going to be rethinking this, you know, wh what do we do? Where can we go? And so, you know, literally the ACP, we're constantly kind of thinking that, but I think we're going through a bit more of that in, with some co committee meetings this summer of saying, is it time to put forth kind of a new vision for where we think we should go next? You know, quite frankly, let's, let's kind of think a little bigger. You know, we, we've kind of, you know, maybe the ACA was kind of, you know, health reform 1.0 um, and we need to get to 2.0. Um, clearly it's a, it's a complicated world. There are tremendous, uh, vested interests between the insurance industry and pharma, uh, the, the whole medical industrial complex. I mean, it is, it is an animal and any little change you make is going to make five other pieces shift a little bit to make sure that they still have a role. Um, so there's, there's def definitely no easy answer, but what I can tell you is that the ACP is really thinking this through a lot, has been for the last six months, and will be for the next few, as we're seeing if we can congeal something meaningful. I think we all recognize that there's a lot of entities involved with the ACA and how much doctors are paid broadly. But I did want to get your thoughts and, and everybody's on some of the positions ACP has taken on the gender pay gap. And that seems like something that as a professional organization, we should be able to influence more directly, considering that a lot of our leadership are also leadership of large medical centers across the country. Yeah. And, you know, how do we translate the position that we've taken? And, and I'll let you elaborate on that to actually improving the pay of our colleagues who are doing the same work we are. And um, I want to give a shout out to the ACP CEO, CEO Daryl and Moyer, who is one of very few female CEOs of the big medical organizations. AMA now has a female head and our upcoming president of ACP will be female as well. Not that Robert's not wonderful because he is. And Ana Maria Lopez was our outgoing president. Um, but it's really interesting how things come together in, in a, in a, in a time period of things that matter. So, um, you know, to give some background on the gender pay gap stuff, that ended up being around the same time that JAMA Internal Medicine was talking about gender pay gap. And that ended up being a year before the Me Too movement happened. And now uh, on the two-year anniversary of the Me Too movement, ACP is heavily involved in Time's Up Healthcare, um, which basically sort of is looking at the big picture perspective of women in this profession and what it means for us to be in this profession from a leadership standpoint, from a practice standpoint, from a health standpoint, and also from a, um, a salary standpoint. And I think a lot of there's, it's great that we're talking about issues, but, you know, an evidence, we're all physicians here, we all believe in evidence based everything is, are we making strides? And I think it's too soon to tell right now if we're making what kind of strides we're making um, from a bigger picture. 
but I'll say as, you know, um, a, a first year attending out of training, it's nice for me to be able to lean on these men and women um, as I approach my job, uh, you know, my first job in contract negotiations and what to look for and what not to look for. Um, and ACP actually does provide a lot of resources for that. But most importantly, I think the theme is not what ACP does or doesn't do, but having a sense of community is really important. So I would encourage, and no matter where you are, build that sense of community, find those mentors in your healthcare organization and, and like find the good people and, and run with them. Um, and don't get bogged down by the bad people. And if you find that the people that you're working with are, um, are, are, you know, sexist or racist or putting you down, don't work there. It's not a good place to be. If, if, and if you have an access to a Dr. Daryl and Moyer, uh, that's very helpful. She is a mentor, <laughs> a mentor and sponsor to both Paul and I. And, uh, I was actually at her grand rounds that she gave, uh, in Philadelphia recently. And I think it was like at the current rate without, if we didn't do anything, the pay gap wouldn't close until like 2070 or something. Mm-hmm. It was some ridiculous number. Um, but we we just we have an episode from the July twenty fourth uh, with Dr. Jagsey from Times Up Healthcare, and she she had a lot of data that uh, we still have a long way to go, but it, it seems very promising, and uh, it's it, there's amazing things being done. So it's very inspiring to just kind of watch uh, and and do whatever I can to help support that. Absolutely. But we do. We have to. We have to talk about it and talk about it a lot. And, and that's what's happening. To kind of deep's question: How do you make change happen? Um, and you know, some of those people might be in those uh, C suites in different entities and large networks, and they need to be hearing it. And as I say, I think it, you know, you can't you can't make things happen in those entities unless you're there at that table. And a lot of those people are connected to or maybe have been ACP leaders. And the more we talk about it, the more I think likely change will happen. It it is slow, but most change is slow. But I don't know that we can really be doing anything more. We are talking about it a lot. Yeah. And and also, I think it's important for us to talk not just about um, us as physicians, but also patients. So there was, uh, and and Dr. McLean, uh, maybe you can talk about a little bit about the women's health policy paper that came out recently and sort of what was the impetus for that paper and what are some of the, you know, the salient points from it? Yeah. So, so that paper, um, I mean, there were, there were a number of different, and correct me if I'm wrong here, cause you might be more familiar. The, I think it came through one of the councils or chapters where there were increasingly, there was an increasing frequency of, of state laws that were, uh, limiting women's access to, healthcare, specifically reproductive healthcare. Um, and while some might kind of frame that as an abortion rights kind of law or bill, um, I think that as physicians delivering care and recognizing that reproductive healthcare is more than just abortion or not, it's, it's a whole spectrum of things. And when there are attacks on uh, or, or limits on Planned Parenthood and other things that were happening that the feeling was that we really needed to um, to step up and, and say, this is not just a political issue. This is health and health care. Um, and so as a result of that, 
we decided to kind of frame all that within it being an equal access to healthcare for you know half of the population. Mm-hmm. And that's where that came from. Is that pretty accurate, Fatima? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. And I think um, it's also sort of uh, a call to action of framing women's healthcare as, as, as primary care as well. And that as, you know, internists, uh, we need to, we need to learn more and we also need to protect the rights of women, just as um, Dr. McLean discussed, but we need to learn more and be better when it comes to providing healthcare to women. Um, and I think that's the general gist of that paper. And it's, again, it was, it was dreamed up before, uh, there were, are a lot of, you know, political things happening to women's healthcare. Um, and it came out in a time when all of that was actually happening. So it's, I don't know how it happens that we end up having a paper that ends up being really relevant politically, but somehow that's been the theme the last few years. If I could just make a quick comment about advocacy in general, in terms of what how things kind of take off, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that one of the, the issues that we feel strongly about is is gun violence as a public health issue, and and that became a huge issue. Uh, no intent really from us. We had a public policy or a policy paper going back late two thousands about. Uh, gun violence being concerned about the effects of gun violence, and maybe we should be looking at this as a public health issue. And then um, we kind of put together after some of the different events four, three or four years ago, a, a revised policy paper, which got a bit of press. And then after another series of shootings and, and tragic deaths, we put out kind of an updated pe- comment or paper to that, whatever it was last fall. And it was then like a month later right after there had been another one of these horrific shootings that someone from the NRA said, How the, what are the doctors talking about? They should stay in their lane. And then, and actually a trauma surgeon responded on Twitter and it became wildfire saying, this is our lane. So all of that, this is our lane stuff actually was a response to the ACP's policy paper or update from the month before. And it just took off, and um, it was it was unbelievable. And I mean, I don't think the NRA has ever gotten such bad press. Um, but it was it ju- it showed the impact that, from an advocacy standpoint, that physicians standing up for the right thing um, can have. And I think a lot of people really admired the ACP for that stance, became more uh, aware of it. Um, and I, I think became more aware of the ACP's standing up in the public health space on a number of different topics, whether climate change being a public health issue, um, you know, the gun violence, uh, a bunch of other things. I, you know, I, I think some of the concerns are, are more that, at least some of the concerns from the layperson are, are that some of these statements seem very broad in their scope and not specific in their execution. Um, like, like specifically about like gun violence, for for example, what specifically was ACP trying to do at that point? Well, I think um, there, there, there's, there's good evidence. So there again, this is evidence based. So there's evidence that people who have access to guns, not just criminals, uh, have a higher rate of suicide in the home, of ch- children getting injured with with guns, um, mental health issues. I mean, so there were a number of different things that have a specific has evidence that access to guns um, increases you know rates of violence um, and so it was, it was really framed as not take away all guns it was not a, a complete uh, gun control uh, 
debate, so to speak. It was, we need to look at guns where there's certain safety features that need to be in place. You, you know, remove the, the, the big, uh, the, ma the magazines that have a lot. I mean, all, there's just a whole lot of things there that wasn't just gun access. It was, it was public health. And it was also, we see patients who have been injured by guns. We see people who have emotionally been injured because their child died or their relative died. I mean, it's having a tremendous impact on the public health of our community. And so it was, it was really very much framed as gun violence is a public health issue and we need to address it as such. And Stuart, I think you bring up a really good point about what is scope and what's not. And Deep and I have talked about that a lot. And Deep, I'd love for you to get in on this. <laughs> well, I mean, most of the United States Congress is full of attorneys who have an area of expertise but seem to be experts in everything. <laughs> so there's no reason that that we can't have strong, well-informed, data-supported opinions. Um, and I think what that – so that paper was actually originally written um, in 2014, and it was just an update, I think, that came out uh, in the context of all this that uh, Dr. McLean was um, describing where the surgeon from – I think he's at Hopkins – made a tweet, and it sort of exploded. But what that really focused on were two important political things. One is patient-doctor confidentiality and privacy and the right to discuss gun violence in the home. And the second was on the actual morbidity and mortality of gun-related violence. And I don't think anybody right. would argue that those aren't things that we want as a professional society. One, to be able to discuss whatever we need to for our patients' health and safety. And the second is the actual morbidity and mortality. And I, that's a very elegant way it was framed. Um, similarly, in, in my home state of Georgia, there was recently a a bill passed in the legislature and signed um, the heartbeat bill, which many of you may have seen um, in the popular news as uh, an abortion bill. But a lot of the medical societies here took a position on it that normally would not because it basically criminalized physicians for performing any act. So while they may not have taken a specific position on abortion, they did take a position on how it affects physicians and their relationship with their patients. So that's why I think in terms of scope, um, I certainly am someone who believes that until we have our financial house in order as a profession, um, you know, that, that should be where we put most of our time. But there's no reason we can't have a qualified voice on several other issues that affect our patients. Yeah, no, Deep, I'm, I'm glad you qualified it that way. It is a lot of what's underwritten some of the, these positions was laws or potential laws to uh, prevent or to interfere with the physician-patient relationship and what could be talked about or what could or should be done. And I think the a real major objection was government interference in that. Mm -hmm. Um, the government should not be telling us what we can or cannot discuss with our patients. The uh, the, the gun gag rule started out in Florida several years ago. You know, they it tried to pass a law that you can't ask about guns in the house or whatever. And that kind of started several years ago. So all of these things have kind of built together. But it really is – it's framed not to make these political issues, but to put them in the context of who we are as physicians, what we're trying to do in taking care of patients, and how these various laws might affect our patients.
I think one of the big things that matters is physician autonomy. Autonomy is really important to us as a profession, to all of us as a profession. So political leanings may be different, but we want to work to protect each other's autonomy. And I think that is like the, that's regardless of what the stance is, ACP or any organization takes, it, it, the stances it takes are for the best interest of physicians and for patients, but also to protect each other, if that makes sense. And Fatima, I think we're out of time. Can you bring us home? Maybe if you want to throw take-home points, ask ask Robert for take-home points, or if you want to, however you want to bring us home here. Absolutely. Um, Dr. McLean, can you give us you know, your main advice and takeaways on what exactly advocacy is and how the practicing physician can get involved? So I think I'd start off with, I would kind of define advocacy as, as taking a position in the public space on behalf of a meaningful issue. Uh, and that can have a broad spectrum. I think that what effective advocacy is, is trying to figure out how to make that taking of a position actually have an impact. And that involves getting involved with, uh, legislators, policymakers, the state level at the national level. I think when people are concerned and want to know how can I stay informed on these kind of things, I think quite frankly, one of the best sources of information that I think is fairly readable to people who aren't too sophisticated is, is the ACP's uh, government relations director, uh, Bob Darty, who has a blog and writes a column in the monthly ACP internist. He's been doing this for the ACP for 25 years, and I would say I rarely disagree with him. And, and his blog posts are absolutely phenomenal on really giving a pretty good sense of what's going on in D.C. and how to make sense of it from the standpoint of what is usually reflective of ACP policy. But it's, it's hard to keep up, but I think there again, people need to keep up. They need to find new sources and at least touch the surface on some of these issues. And also, as you would, as we had mentioned earlier, the ACP's uh, uh, kind of policy compendium on the web is is a is a treasure of, of public policies. If someone were to read through the last five years or ten years of policy papers, they would effectively have the equivalent of an MPH of education, <laughs> but just no letters after their name. <laughs> Deep, did you have any final comments? Yeah, I just want to say it can be a lot of work to participate in advocacy. And sometimes you don't see the fruits of your labor for several years. And you're just one voice in a, a big physician community. But it does mean a lot to legislators to hear from doctors at the local level, the state level, and federally. So all of this stuff is related Physicians are trying across the country to preserve their autonomy, and I think that's a unifying theme for a lot of the work that we do. We want to, one, put our patients first and take care of them, but second, also maintain our sanity. And I bet in some way we, we could bring all of ACP's positions um, back to those two points. Um, so <laughs> stay positive, and I think that ACP and a lot of the other professional societies do amazing work. And you can have a real impact um, as, as soon as you're ready to get involved. Yeah, if I could just say one more word. So the, I mean, I, I've, people have asked me, why are you so involved in advocacy? And I have come to realize in the last few years that it was my um, burnout prevention. You know, talk about people needing a higher purpose and meaning and, and taking care of patients and curing them and making them feel good is unbelievably meaningful and is, is like the greatest uh, uh, 
uh, honor to have that opportunity to do that for patients. But it still is sometimes really frustrating and tiring. And, and being able to kind of be involved at a, at a higher purpose, meaningful level is, is just, it just tremendously invigorating, especially when, and I've been lucky, I've had a couple opportunities where, you know, I maybe had contact with a legislator or a regulator and, and I made a difference. You know, I, I kind of had, I impacted, I think someone's opinion, sometimes, especially at the state level, a lot of advocacy and getting involved is preventing bad things from happening. You know, there are a horrible, there are a lot of really bad, well, not well thought out bills that are in state legislators. And if it wasn't for the, the state medical societies and physicians involved, helping educators, helping legislators understand the bad ramifications of things, there would be a lot of bad laws passed. So it's, it's hopefully being there to help good things happen, but you got to be patient because a lot of the time is preventing bad things from happening. Mm -hmm. Fatima, do you have anything else before we go? I think the big thing is, is I, you don't, we don't all have to believe the same thing, but to care about our profession um, and to care about our patients. So don't feel turned off by certain things that any medical organization is doing. Um, and don't think that everything that you think is going to be the policy of the American College of Physicians, it's not. Um, we thrive on having a diverse membership. And so get involved wherever you are in your local organization, in your local chapter. Um, it's a good place to start. Great advice. If you believe medicine is a calling, that means that your profession chose you. You didn't choose your profession. <laughs> so then it's like you're a family and you have to get along no matter <laughs> how much you disagree. So now everyone hug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hug. <laughs> Paul, Paul Williams would love, if you ever see Paul Williams run into him, please give him a hug. Do, do not. <laughs> do not hug. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Ish. <laughs> Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're... That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for the show, Dr. Fatima Syed, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris Chumanchu on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. And uh, I would like to thank Dr. Deep Shah, who had to leave before our sign-off tonight, but uh, serving as co-host tonight and co-expert, I guess. Uh, I, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I've been Dr. Fatima Sayed. And our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Oh, hi, Paul. Classic stuff. that's going to be the latest give paul williams a hug we're going to be at a lot of <laughs> meetings this year paul see how many hugs